Welcome to The Leadership Mind. I'm your host, Massimo Bacchus. This show is about the stories, assumptions, and perspectives that either create or block our ability to lead. In this podcast, we'll speak with those that are in the arena, the leaders themselves. By trade and training, I'm a leadership coach and facilitator with a relentless curiosity for helping people, teams, and organizations thrive in pursuit of making their vision and purpose a reality. The goal is to bring you new insights, perspectives, and practices to help you lead authentically, navigate your career intentionally, and grow high-performing teams successfully. My hope is that in these episodes, you will witness humility, where we celebrate our failures as much as our successes. Curiosity, where we share wisdom and insights openly. And community, where we grow together. Let's explore the leadership mind. Good day, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Leadership Mind. I'm your host, Massimo Bacchus, and today I'm joined by my friend, Jess Omni. Yep. Jess has 20 years of experience working in learning and development, leadership development, organizational communications. She has a master's in education from North Dakota State University, a, cert- a certificate in improving human performance from the Association of Talent Development. She is... Um, a bright light in the field of talent development and training and is someone that I've become friends with through the talent development think tank run by Andy Storch, our mutual friend. And Jess, I'm just delighted to have you on the podcast. Welcome. Thank you. It is my pleasure to be here. I always start off these conversations by getting to people's origin stories. I believe that people work in the space of learning and development and leadership from a place of passion. Sometimes people fall into it and sometimes people Uh, fight very hard to find their way and and break into it, but that there is always a place of passion. What was your starting place? How did you find your way on this journey to be uh, a leader and executive in this space now where you're influencing so many people positively? Yeah, in in this learning and development world. Well, I think back, and I think you and I share this similar background in that we spent time in our younger years doing a bit of theater. Yes, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and so as a younger person, I did, I did some theater and I found that, yeah, the stage was great, but I was also really interested in what happened backstage and how it all worked to come together. So that collaborative experience was really interesting to me. And it was fun. It was, I mean, theater was fun. It was a great place to be around people who were, who were silly and encouraging and all those things. So I know you, you have a similar experience. Yeah, but you found some inspiration in recognizing that it wasn't just the people on the stage performing, but it was the people that created um, the sets and that were working the lighting and the directing and, and the staging and mm-hmm. uh, the rehearsals and that it took a, a whole team to bring it together to create the performance. Yeah, it was that it was a whole, it was a whole, I mean, production but that took everybody, every single person had value. And so when I was in college, then I thought, well, I'll go into event planning. That's the way to go because of this love of theater. That's where that came from. And I spent time in college on the committees that do all the bringing of the concerts and the dances and the, and loved it. And so my first few jobs out of college were event planning roles, but it was very entertainment focused. And very quickly, I realized that I wanted the entertainment was great, but there could be more to that. It could make a bigger impact and we could there could be a difference made in people's lives, particularly when there was a learning component to it. 
And so I left that event planning world to be a training coordinator. And that was really my first job in this learning and development world where I did the, the new employee orientations for uh, a company in the Minneapolis St. Paul area. And it was great. Um, I enjoyed the work. And what I think I found out from that was that I discovered this passion for, yeah, I love it when people learn, but there's always a better way. So I started to reflect back on my life of, of how I had learned in lectures growing up. And I did okay. I, I was a person who did okay in school by reading the book, but you can't just read the book and get an A in life. And there's a better way to engage people and help them to learn. And honestly, that is what I think really has driven me in a lot of ways is there's a better way to learn in the or late nineties when all of this was happening. Um, I think events, learning was very event driven. It was very much you go to a training class, much like growing up, you go to a class and you learn this way. Um, but is there a better way to do the learning class? And in fact, I, I got more and more into L&D when I started working in higher education in the early 2000s. And at that time, I also went back to get my thesis, my master's and my thesis asked the question, can leadership be learned in a classroom? And that was because of all of this that had fueled, there's got to be a better way to do this. Is yeah. this really working? That's how I fell into the, the profession. And I think just by having that, constantly asking that question evolved to the place where I'm at today. And what did you find in your thesis research about leadership being learned in the classroom? Mm-hmm. Isn't that that isn't that the, the question is so pieces of it potentially, but it depends on the way that you do the classroom. So what I did was a number of different focus groups from with folks who had gone to leadership sessions, leadership classes to see what they had learned. What I found was nobody remembers a single bullet on any PowerPoint slide. <laughs> so in other words, those are virtually useless. But if you have an experience that happens during that session, people will remember the experience and that is what they'll carry forward. And so when we talked about um, crucial conversations, for example, or cultural diversity, if there was an experience tied to that, that made an impact and made someone think differently, then they were more likely to take that and continue to practice it or continue to ask questions about it and reflect on it later, which therefore would help them to develop some leadership skills. It wasn't the class itself. It was kind of the experience during it and then how they used it afterwards. So it was agnostic of whether it was in the classroom or not, but what was necessary was the experience Correct. for them to actually internalize and have Correct. something to reflect on so they could remember it and use it again. Correct. You know, it reminds me of the Maya Angelou quote, people won't remember what you said or what you did, but they'll remember how you made them feel. And to be able to have like a visceral experience as you're learning a concept, crucial conversations or whatever it might be and apply it to yourself. Those aha moments arise when you realize like, I've been thinking about this the wrong way. Yes. Oh my gosh, if I had said it this way versus the way that I had said it, you know, the outcome would have been so different. Yes, absolutely, 100%. So coming out of that research, what was your um, what was your mindset when you when you came into this to this field? Um, I guess kind of with with greater purpose and intent. Um, my mindset was 
let's make sure that we're providing experiences to help develop people that are more than a single event because a single event isn't enough. And let's make sure that we're not just throwing information at people, which is, I think, the way that traditionally a lot of learning and development has been done. Let's tell them all the things and then we'll wait and let somebody figure out how to do it on their own later when that isn't really that helpful. So if we're going to maximize the opportunity to assist someone in learning a new skill or practicing a new, a new set of, of skills, it has to be more than a one-time thing. A one-time thing can be part of it, but it can't be a one and done. Yeah. What, what were you met with when you brought this insight and awareness into organizations? Yeah. So when I, when I came up with it, I was working in higher ed and I was running a student leadership development program that was a comprehensive program. And so we, I just kept infusing different experiences into that program to make it extremely collaborative. So there was, there was a, a session component where students would go to a session here or there, but it didn't end there. There were service experiences with reflection combined. So it was that true service learning, learning model. Um, there were mentoring components with both alumni and faculty, and all of those had to combine in order for somebody to progress through and become certified in different levels of leadership. So that was in the in higher ed which is a little different than working in, a, in, in industry. In industry, I think it is became much more about how do I tell the story and create change in such a way that buy-in is created from other folks throughout the organization who don't think about this stuff on a day-to-day -day basis. You know, I spend time and you spend time, we're constantly thinking about how can we help people learn, develop, grow. It's just in the blood that we have. But I know most people are not thinking about that every day, which is both, which is beautiful because then we have that space, but then we need to learn how to tell that story. And so that, and I know you and I talked before about the 70-20-10 and kind of some of the programs that we had put together that's really where that came into play was creating an experience versus an event for someone to learn how to do their job. Yeah. And I want to talk about the 702010 in a moment, but right okay. now it sounds like what you're talking about is stakeholder engagement and influence. For sure. When you think about that, is it with the participants of the program or is it with the organization at large, the executive team, where does it start for you? For me, it starts with the I would say executive team and or maybe even more so the managers of the folks who we are working with. So if the managers, the executive team can get on board and the managers can get on board and see the value, then we can in, in, integrate a program into what we're doing that that makes more sense. And how do you get the managers to see the value without having had the gift of the experience with which you've created? Yeah, that is an excellent question. And I would say first and foremost, it is, well, it's two things, building a relationship before you need it. So building social capital and two, gaining some business credibility. And so when I started at the company that I'm at now, one of my first tasks was to say, who are all the people in this company that I need to know in order to really understand how the company ticks 
and who I'm going to be influencing with the work that I do. And I did what I call a learning tour, sat down with all of those people for a half an hour each and did nothing but ask them questions about what it was like to live their life day to day. It wasn't really about me in that moment. It was, what do you do? What is your day like? What are the challenges you encounter? What's the cadence like of your work? Are there times in the year when you're really busy? Are there times in the year when you're not as busy? So that I could better have an understanding of what it was they do and look to them as experts of the experts, experts in their area. I don't know more about their area than they do. So I really wanted to understand. And by doing that, that that lays the groundwork, I think, for no, I don't want to just do stuff for you. I want to understand your business so we can be partners. And then I want to know you and I want you to know me. So when I come around the corner and we have to have a conversation about a potential program, it's not who is this person and why is she coming to talk to me? It's, oh yeah, I know her. We've chatted before. I'd love to have a conversation with you. And I approach it always as a partnership. Yeah. So once we establish the business credibility where I am doing my best to understand what my business partner is doing and really let them know that it's about them, not really about me. Then when I come with them and say, you know, here's what I know about learning and here's what I've seen work. Now they look to me as more of an expert in my area because I trust them as an expert in their area. So that's really how we get it started. And then we start small and with little wins. And then we let people know we promote the heck out of those little wins. And um, my last comment is I always start with where the energy is. I go with where the energy is. So if there's one area that's really excited to work with me, I'm going to start there. Yeah. And then I'm going to let all the other areas know what happened. Hey, right. did you know that we changed our training in the call center? And here's, here's as a result, what's happened. And pretty soon the ones who were a little bit more hesitant to get on board don't want to be left behind. So yeah. That's, that's the, in a nutshell, kind of how I approach that. Jess, tell me about the small wins when you, when you're thinking about, um, you've built this, um, this capital, you've built these relationships, there's Mm -hmm. trust, there's mutual empathy and understanding for expertise and contribution. What's a small win look like that, you know, you're, you're sitting the right kind of, um, stones to create the path forward. Well, I think it depends on who we're working with. So I can think right now we're in conversation with a new area of our business that was newly acquired. And we're looking at how we can assist them in having a better structure to their onboarding. One really easy thing I can do is get them involved in our new employee orientation right away. So they see what that experience is and they see how it's different. It's only a few hours on a Monday, so it's pretty easy. Um, That's one small win. But that's a little different than I would say when I go back to how we completely overhauled all of the onboarding experiences within our organization. Um, the small win was changing, changing from a very traditional classroom style model to more of a blended model. And the first time we did that, then gathering feedback after that. So just one before we overhaul the whole model, we, we overhaul one product or one little piece of it. So we're an employee benefits company. We work with uh, flexible spending accounts, health savings accounts, that kind of thing. So let's say the flexible spending account is a product. We're going to start with an introductory blended learning approach to an FSA. So we do just that, just one thing. And then we get feedback on how it worked. 
the feedback is positive, we share that out, we continue with the next piece. That would be an example to me. Okay, so you're piloting it in one place, getting feedback on it, socializing right. that to make sure that people understand the value of that small piece, and then you continue the buy-in for the next step. Yep. When you think about your leadership development programs and the leadership culture and philosophy that's been created, what have been some of the keys to success around um, not just creating it, but sustaining it? So I can talk about that in a couple different ways. One is uh, in the current role I'm at, I'm not in the place where I create the leadership development programs. I did that in the college. And then I work really hard to develop leadership within my own team. So yeah. I can talk about that as well, because to me, that's just as much of leadership development as anything else. Absolutely. So the thought is, how do we sustain? Was that the question? Yeah. When you yeah. grow up, then how do you sustain it? You know, um, you think about, again, programs or experiences and people leave those and mm -hmm. there's, there's a half-life to it. Um, you know, personally, I found the best way to sustain is for people to give back. So taking yeah. would have been through some sort of transformative experience and say, now you're going to come back and you're going to be a coach for these people as well. Yep. They are in a sense open to it, but, but really forced to continue to have that growth mindset because they're going back through the experience again as a teacher, but they're still the student. Mm -hmm. It just enriches and, and deepens that experience for them more. And I think people get more out of it when they're in that spot and they get to, they get to give as well as receive. Yeah, hundred percent. And we have done that as well. Very much so. Um, in both instances, both in my own team and then in the college as well. We would bring back those then graduated students and yeah. involve them. Um, also, another way that I think I keep it sustained is to create really solid collaboration with many different people or areas. So we had alumni involved, we had faculty mentors involved, we had student affairs um, professionals involved. We had students involved and student leaders involved. We had student clubs involved. We had um, freshman entry-level classes involved. We, I mean, the more people we can have involved, then the more it's likely to, to keep moving because of the, of the intense collaboration that's happening from multiple different areas. Yeah, it becomes a part of the zeitgeist. It's, it's, it's present <laughs> in the organization. Yeah. Okay, so let's go back to the 70, 2010. And, and we have talked about this in the past, but you've done something pretty innovative with the way that you're sequencing the work that you've, I think maybe broken an antiquated learning model and come up with something that is um, pretty progressive. And it sounds like based on all your, the relationships you've built and, and the trust that's been built in the organization, that it's been quite successful. What's that process been like? And, and what does it look like today? Yeah, I would that process has been in the making. And I would say, you know, we are, we never have it perfect. So we're definitely still working on it, but we started it about five years ago. We, um, I looked at our onboarding program. And so one of the things that our team does is we onboard and upskill any employee who comes into the certain division of the organization where I oversee the learning, the health division, um, we onboard and upskill them into their specific roles. So it's, it's pretty specific, but we're only a small team, so we can't do everything. And what was happening was, well, an, a couple of different things. Number one, it was a very quickly growing organization when I joined it. And all of the training that was happening was, was mainly one-on-one. -on -one. 
So it's very organic where a quickly growing company, pretty typical, hey, we hired a new person, um, Jess, go sit with Sally. She knows what she's doing. Pretty soon Sally is all she's doing is training people because we are hiring so quickly. So Sally gets slapped on the title of trainer. So those were the majority of the trainers in our organization. And they had been asked to come up with then how to train people in to do their roles. And they were doing a decent job, but most of it then became not even one-on-one, -on -one, but more about fire hose and, um, and then go do your job. So a lot, a lot of information. What's that? Get as many people through as possible, get them as much information as quickly as possible. Yep. And then we'll, you know, we'll call it done. Yes, with very little practice, very little hands-on, and extremely inefficient because we now had, I want to say there were over 20 trainers throughout the organization in different pockets. And really the tipping point was a budget year where a, a, lot, a lot of people came to the CFO and said, hey, we need more trainers. And the CFO said, you can't have any more trainers until you can prove to me that there's no duplication happening. And that's when I got tapped on the shoulder to come in and say, can you eliminate this duplication and make it more efficient and make it more effective? I was in a different role in the organization at the time. So then pulled all these now subject matter experts together and had to figure out how to move them from subject matter experts to learning experts. And I will say we lost some people on the team because that wasn't everybody's gig. They didn't want to be experts in learning. They wanted to be experts in their subject. Mm -hmm. But the approach then that we took was a, um, we started with the blended learning approach, the hybrid model where, and, and I did explain it this way to some people in the very beginning, which was um, like a flipped classroom. So where the this is being done now in some schools where a teacher will give the information on a video and then the time in the classroom with the teacher is when you're doing the homework. And it sounds so counter to how our society has been, but think about when you have all the, when you have the most questions. Yeah. When you're it's doing It's not work. right. It's not when you're listening to the teacher, explain it to you up on the board, you're just taking notes and trying to take it all in. But then when you sit down to try to do it is when you have all the questions. So we started with that model in part, because what we could do was create some very, very specific e-learnings that gave the information that everyone could watch at their own pace, multiple times if they wanted to. And then instead of subject matter experts who were spewing information, our trainers had to become facilitators of learning. So immediately after taking one of our e-learnings, the regarding that same information, people hop into what we call a lab and they play with the information. So this goes back to what we were talking about earlier, uh, where we're trying to create an experience. We're trying to create something that people can hang on to that makes sense to them, that helps them figure out why they have the role they have and why we just told them this information and how it relates to them specifically. So they play with that information in some way. And then the third piece of the stool is now they go back to their team and there is a mentor or a coach or somebody on their team that's showing them specifically how what they just learned applies to their job. So let's go back to the, the lab for a moment. Yeah. Give me an example of what's happening in the lab. I'm, I'm, I'm 
playing with some information. I have a learning mm -hmm. facilitator there that's guiding me through it. Mm -hmm. Is it clear that there is a, a learning objective that I'm supposed to have at mm -hmm. the end of this? Is it, um, is it about testing hypotheses, learning a process? What's it look like? Mm -hmm. So I would say it depends on what the lab is in response to. So if it's in response to a product, which is very much just information, and this is an introductory, we'll go back to FSA, an intro to what an FSA is, and I watch an e-learning on that. What is an FSA? Now, what's that? An, what an FSA, sorry, good call. Call me on my acronyms, a flexible spending account, flexible which spending. is something within the U.S. healthcare system. People can set aside money from their paycheck pre-tax to help pay for healthcare expenses Got it. later okay. on. So if we're explaining that, we give a little overview of what it is in an e-learning that is created in a way to be interactive. We don't do our e-learnings, just click a button and move through as fast as you can. So that's step one. Step two, I hop into what's a lab. And now because it's something that I don't have a lot of context for yet, I've maybe been on the job one, two days. I don't really know what this is. Now what we're doing is first off, we play a little, maybe a game to review the information on what was covered in the e-learning, but it's an interactive game. And then two, we talk about how does, how could this relate to you as an individual? So one of the things when you have an FSA is you have to learn um, how much money should I set aside for my paycheck to pay for expenses? So I have to do a little bit of thinking about what I might be paying for in the next year. So we play a game of what might you be paying for? How much do those things cost? Um, how would you decide on your own budget? So very interactive, personal to each and every person who could be in that course. Okay, so that's not related to their job. That's just related to if I was a, um, a user yep. of an FSA, how might I go about doing this so they can understand the end client's experience? Correct. So now if I wanna know how it relates to my job, that's step three. Because when we're doing, especially this high level product overview information, this is everybody in the company. So I could be a salesperson, I could be a data processor, I could be a call center rep. So we've got to keep it broad enough that it relates to everyone. But previously, this is the thing that people were repeating and was being duplicated by every single trainer. Every single trainer was having to explain this to anybody who started. So now it's done once, it's a group of people. And now I've saved time because I go back to my individual team and I learn, well, how do I work with this product in my own role? And so each of the different functions has a coach facilitator that, that they meet with and say, okay, you've been through step one and step two. And now step three is about application in the context of your role. Yep. And I'm answer questions for you and and it enriches their learning. Is, yeah. there a, is there a wrap up with this cohort? Do people come back together at any point in time or? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So this is a, and, and it, it, it kind of cascades out in that what I just explained to you is probably the most basic, basic, basic that everyone goes through. But then I maybe have the next piece is those who were just customer service reps come back and I'm starting to learn the system. Now the system, that's a little different. A system is different than a product. So I maybe see an overview of what the system is, but my lab looks very different because my lab is actually playing in the system, doing a scavenger hunt in the system, um, doing some practice exercises in the system. So I get familiar with where I would need to navigate. So it would be some of the people who were in that initial, everybody in the company needs to know, but not everyone. So I. Ideally, this, this um, 
this model takes everything that you need to learn in order to do your role, or at least the top 80%. Mm -hmm. We'll leave out that 20% that happens once a year, twice a year. We're not gonna teach a new hire that because by the time they have to do it, they won't remember it anyway. Right. So we take all of that 80% and we very technical term, chunk it out to be, this is one little piece that you need to learn, one little piece you need to learn, one little piece you need to learn. Each of those pieces has at least those three elements that I just talked about. So first I learn what it is, usually through an e-learning type scenario. Then I practice it, play with it. And then I'm learning how it relates to my job over and over again, over and over again. So it's not, we teach you everything and now you try to play with everything. And now we tell you how it relates to your job. It's one thing at a time. Yeah. What challenges have you faced in scaling this or have you found that it doesn't apply very well to, to particular types of learning? Mm -hmm. That's a good question because it is, I will say, we work with a number of different business units. We're, we sit underneath service and operations. So most of the business units we service to a more in-depth degree are in a service and operations role. And each one we have to work with a little bit differently. And I would, the two, the two things that we really look at is frequency and scale, or sorry, frequency and volume. So if an area is hiring over and over and over again at high numbers, we spend more time with that area than we do at one. So I've got a call center that I work with. They're bringing in 10 to 10 to 15, 20 people every couple of weeks. So that cohort gets is it. We have a lot more time and attention invested in them. And in fact, our trainers do a lot more hands-on work with them before they're out on the floor because of the volume that they have. But we have other areas that hire one to five people a year. And so their curriculum is much more um, around the structured on-the-job training component than it is around the lab work or the, or the blended learning when it gets to be their particular role. So it depends. That's how we, that's how we, how we scale it out, I think. Which makes you have to prioritize and, and that's a function for prioritization. When you made this shift from the legacy model to the sequence model and you um, went from trainers to, <clears throat> excuse me, went from trainers to learning specialists and, and facilitators in that regard, how did you lead your team through that change? Because that is a pretty significant um, shift in not just the way that you do the work, but the identity of learning and development. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's baby steps along the way. So it's been five years. And so I think step one was even talking with the team about what this looks like and why it works. Step two was just one little part, like we talked about a little pilot piece. So let's do a little pilot piece with this, this particular area. Here's what that looks like. Here's what that looks like for a facilitator. And it was hard for quite a few of them um, to make that shift. But then what we also started doing was as people potentially who didn't want to be doing that work left, we replaced them with people who wanted to be experts in learning. And that, that then built even more momentum and more expertise throughout the team. But each year there was a little tiny goal that everyone on the team had. So I'll give you um, most recently, I think it was two years ago now, we created a goal that every team member had to have 
to have listed for every training that they owned, learning objectives, of course, learning outcomes, not objectives, but outcomes. Um, for the, that time, they had to have interaction every four to six minutes. That's the requirement. And there has to be in assessment, informal or formal, for each and every learning experience. So they had to make sure they had all three of those. And we did a complete audit. And it was in their goals for the year that we had to meet that. The year prior, there was a different level of goal. Um, and that was, we started with just, you need to get a little more interaction into your classes. Show us how you put three things that are interactive in your classes. And then the next year, a little bit more. So it happens over time. It wasn't like we just flipped the switch entirely, which is why I say we're still working on it. What I described to you is the perfect model. We're not there with every business unit yet. We're close, but we're not entirely there. Getting there. Mm -hmm. For you, Jess, what's been um, some of the biggest challenges as you grown in your career as a leader and, and continue to take on new challenges and um, being requested to go over and fix fix kind of problems within the organization? Mm -hmm. I would, you know, I have really learned how to master that art of consultative work within an organization. And how do you sell what it is that you're doing, but also in a way that helps that person so that they're getting the value out of it that you want them to get? Um, that, has, that was a challenge at the forefront. I think I knew what I wanted to say, but I needed to get really good at doing that type of work yeah. because it's not, it's never just saying no to someone. It's saying, it's saying, yeah, I'd love to help you with that. Let's talk a little bit more about what's needed. And sometimes it is saying, I have had to say no to people before. Um, when I had one business unit that came and said, we need you to create an entirely le new learning program for this particular role. We don't have any training for it. And I asked the question, well, how often are you hiring for that role? And they said, well, we maybe hire one person a year. So thinking about, we still have to run our organizations learning and development wise too, like a business. So that's another challenge. How do I run this like a business where I can't say yes to every request, but then what can I do? So one of my, my managers that works on my team is fantastic at saying, yeah, but what can we do? And I love that as a mantra of, no, we can't create a one-off entirely comprehensive training program for somebody you hire one maybe one person a year, but what can we do? Can we make sure that there are resources out there? Can we help equip you business team to do a better job making your training consistent, your learning experiences consistent? Can we ask, can we act as reviewers for what you create and give you feedback on that? So we've had to come up with creative ways to approach that issue as well. When you think about developing the, the leadership capacity with your team as you have grown as a leader yourself, what are the what are the hot buttons? What like what's your kind of philosophy and methodology to ensure that you're scaling an organization of people that have that consultative approach? Mm -hmm. So the consultative approach right now is our biggest focus for 2022. We have a theme for 2022. It's consult and measure. So those are the things we're really focusing on in the next year and cascading that outward. I would say that the managers on my team do a good job, but I see that if we're going to continue to move forward in the organization and if we're going to continue to scale, we have to have more folks who can have those kinds of conversations. So a couple things. One, I'm going to go back to relationship building again because no one really 
is going to take it when you just tell it to them. They have to experience it and understand it themselves. One of the things that I tried very early on that surprisingly worked really well was when I first became got in this position, I um, pulled there were four leaders on my team, three leaders, sorry, three leaders, and I pulled them and said, hey, we're going to do a book read together and we're going to get together once a week and talk about a chapter in a book. And the very first book I chose was Multipliers by Liz Wiseman, because that is the philosophy that I would love for all of our leaders to have on the team. And I think, honestly, they just said yes, because I was the new boss. Mm -hmm. I don't think they really wanted to do it. And in fact, later, one of them said, yeah, I didn't really want to do that. I don't really want to read books, but this has now become the most valuable time of my week. So we would meet once a week and we would talk about the chapter in the book. But more importantly, we built relationships. We learned more about each other that we wouldn't have learned in a hundred in a in a one hour tactical team meeting. And we talked about how these leadership content concepts integrated with the work that we were doing and where they fit and where they didn't fit and what questions we had and what team members we had that were struggling with that. And that is the single most uh, I, that is the thing that I have seen the most growth from from the leaders was just having those conversations on a regular basis, because otherwise and the, the, the book gave us a vehicle to have those conversations focus them, but otherwise we don't make time to have conversations outside of the very tactical. Exactly. The meetings are just on what do we need to do what's been done. Mm -hmm. Have you continued the book club? Program? Yes, we have. Yep, we have now been doing it for. Call I think three or four years. And we, we're, we're a little flexible. We took, we'd usually take a break over the holidays and we'll be starting up again this year, but because our focus is now to develop more of the team members on our team to have these same types of skills, we're going to be inviting additional folks to join and be running it more like breakout groups um, where they're gonna be able to have that opportunity as well. And then will your managers be leading those discussions? Yes. Oh, it's brilliant. That's Thanks. great. When you think about the, the field at large, what is something that uh, within talent and learning that you think is so important that you wish everyone knew, but, but they may not? Yeah. Um, really, talent and learning, everything we do has to go back to that moment of apply. And so often we focus on what people need to know. And yes, there are things they need to know, but they only need to know them so they can apply them. And that's the piece we miss more often than not. Any way we can get more application focus into the work we do, it will make it much more impactful and people will use it and they will, it will make more sense to them. It's really, really hard. I don't know why so many of us think, or it traditionally, we can tell people information and then they'll connect the dots themselves later as to how to do it. We've got to get the how you do it and how it applies to you in that moment. And then make sure that there's resources too, so that when I leave this course and I find that I'm stumbling, I know where to go to get the answers afterwards or where to, where to ask the questions. Um, so we've focused a lot, really a lot more on what people need to do. And in fact, that's how we start our conversations now with our stakeholders. What do they need to do? I don't even start by asking them what they need to know anymore because the knowing will come with the doing. We'll figure that out along the way. It's by the end of this training course, what does somebody need to come back to their desk and be able to do? 
And by that, we have completely changed the way that we approach how we design, uh, very much more that action, action learning. Um, but I wish we did more around the moment of apply. So do those become your learning objectives then, the application? Yes. Yep, it does. It's all yeah. about application. And is that how you start the design process? Yes. By determining what are all the different moments of application? Yep. What is it that they need to do in their role? This, the concept of apply is intuitive. It makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you find that when you're working with business leaders that you're designing this for? Is it intuitive to them or do they have a hard time being able to define the apply? I was, I was talking to somebody yesterday and they were using this metaphor of um, beating eggs. You know, you're beating eggs for scrambled eggs. And if you had to describe like, how do I do this? Something that you just kind of do intuitively. You've mm-hmm. been doing it for so long, but like, what am I actually doing? What's the motion? What, what, how am I actually applying this action? Mm-hmm. How do you help the leaders that you're creating these programs for articulate application? Well, it depends on the leader and how off, how involved they are in the, in the day-to-day work of the team. So there's some teams that have supervisors that are working supervisors. So they're doing some of the same work that the team members are doing. But then there's some that don't. They have managers who are truly managing the overall team, but they're not as involved in doing the work. Uh-huh. In those instances, we ask for some time to observe and see what folks are doing. We ask the managers too what they do, but we're also going to want to jump in and just watch that process being done because I think you're right. There's this level of unconscious, unconscious, unconscious competence that we reach when we're doing something over and over again, and it's harder to explain it than it is to do it. So that's where we want to get to is, okay, great. They need to know how to do this. And most managers can say, well, they need to know how to take a phone call. Okay, well, what does that look like? And as we dig into that, they can't always define all of those specifics. So then we can sit in and we can listen to the phone call, for example, and watch where the rep needs to um, needs to navigate throughout the call, that kind of thing. Right. But you're approaching with constant curiosity and a consultative mindset around what else is here to learn. Yeah. And just continue to ask questions. Absolutely. Um, I want to pivot. I want to ask about you and your your leadership journey. When you think about your role as a leader and how you've grown through your career as a leader, and I find this is often a challenge for clients of mine, um, we become leaders by title, but leadership is not a title. No, it is not. So how have you, how have you experienced that? And how have you stepped into um, the role of leader um, separate from the title of leader? Yeah. So to me, leadership is all about collaboration and collaboration is all about balancing things, balancing disparate things. So here's what I mean. I think a lot of people confuse, first of all, confuse collaboration and cooperation. Cooperation means we're simply rowing the boat together. That's Mm -hmm. it. But collaboration means we're putting our heads together. We're using our individual strengths, differences, geniuses, perceptions, perspectives, and we're coming up with something together that we could have never created on our own. That is what I'm addicted to. If we can take that journey of discovery and I look at you as an expert and you look at me and we've got these folks around the table. But what that means is that someone who's a really good leader has to be able to know how to both step in and step back and when it's appropriate to do both. So there's times that as a leader, I need to step forward 
and take the lead, or I need to step forward because I know that's the moment when I can add value. But there's many, many other times when I need to step back, either because I know that someone else in the room needs the challenge or because they have the expertise at that point in the journey to offer. And that is really difficult. I think it's difficult and something that I try to work on each and every day in every single meeting. When should I be contributing and when shouldn't I? But it also takes this great combination of confidence and humility because I have to be confident enough to step forward when I'm needed and be confident in that, but humble enough to know that I don't have all the answers and how do I engage those around me? So that's that is how I look at and approach leadership. And when you look at and approach it that way, in some ways, it isn't that different from when you have a title and you're a formal leader to when you don't. Your scope of uh, responsibility potentially increases, but those same skills can be done whether or not you have a title. You can practice them in any, in any situation. You're absolutely right. Any situation. It's an interesting polarity that you're talking about, humility and confidence and being able to hold space for both. Because even yeah. when you step back, you need to have confidence to know that by stepping back, I'm not minimizing Correct. my authority in nope. any way. Yes. What is your process when you're doing this on a daily basis? What questions are you asking yourself? What's your mindset um, in order to know when to step in and step out? Uh, I think knowing having a good understanding of, I call it my what, my who, and my why. So the what is, what is it, what is it that I do well? So what are my strengths, talents? Where's the best place for me to add value? The who is who am I serving? And who am I, um, who am I accountable to? Kind of both. Sometimes when I'm in a meeting, the reason I'm there is because it's a circle that nobody else in my team sits in. And so then in that instance, my role in that moment is to make sure that I'm serving the team. So it's who I'm serving in that moment. And then why is the why am I here? What's the purpose? What's the reason for not even necessarily just to be in this meeting, but the person who has this role to be in this meeting? And so I think about those three things over and over again. When I'm working with my team members, because this, this I think is really difficult until you've worked with somebody a long time and you understand how they work, to understand when they want you to step in as the leader and when to step back. And when do I encourage them to step forward, especially with new folks? So I will often ask, you know, how much, what do you need from me at this moment? Is this too much? Is this not enough? And and we, we have those conversations in one-on-ones, like I said, especially when somebody is new, because that's when I think it's really difficult to provide the right level of direction versus the right level of freedom and challenge. And it's such a powerful question. And it's rarely asked for folks that are, that are new, especially to figure out like, what are their needs? Mm-hmm. What's their preference for something? So you know what their starting place is. I want to go back to what you said, because I think it is such a great framework. It is what am I bringing? What are my strengths, my skills, my genius, my knowledge to the meeting? Who am I serving mm-hmm. and why? What is my purpose for being in this? Yep. When you answer those three things, you kind of know where to gauge yourself, whether you're in or out, or, or maybe it's dynamic moment to moment within the meeting. I would agree. I think it's probably dynamic, although 
probably depends on the on the on the meeting itself but it really takes that you have to start with with you and 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 no, kind of getting comfortable in your own skin of knowing what is the value that i bring when do i bring the best value what are those strengths that i have what are people counting on me to do and and thinking about that that doesn't really change that much from meeting to meeting i would say um, the who I serve may may change based on what what meeting I'm sitting in. Um, the why almost never changes either, though. What's the reason? Sometimes I ask folks, what is the reason your role exists in the company? Not what is the reason you have the role, but what's the reason your role exists? Why did somebody decide that it was worth it to pay a salary and benefits to this position? And if you can start to unpack that, then you know a little bit more about how you can show up. How do you keep this um, present for yourself? How do you stay mindful and, and have the self-awareness and the self-management? Do you think about this intentionally before stepping into every meeting? Has it become second nature to you at this point? Like, well, I guess, what advice would you have for people that want to begin to practice this, um, this awareness? A little bit of both. So it has become second nature for me in a lot of instances, especially since I've had the same role for several years now. So it's not changing a ton from day to day, but of course the work continues to be dynamic. New challenges continue to be presented, but that, that is a continuous question. Or the other question I ask is, is it really, should I really be the one in this meeting or should it be someone else? Because oftentimes it doesn't need to be me and it can be someone else on my team. It can be someone who has that expertise. And as long as they communicate back and we have this open, transparent communication of what's going on in all the places, we're, it, it doesn't necessarily need to be me. So I do do that a lot. And part of that's just my, I really don't like to waste time, energy, or resources. And so that is probably a driving factor, maybe too much. Maybe I'm too practical in that way. But because of that, I always want to make sure that everyone's time in any meeting is valued. And that includes mine. So I am asking it on a regular basis when opportunities come up. Um, I think for the rest of it, it's probably mostly become second nature to me, but everyone has to start with it not second nature, which means you start by thinking about it before the meeting, or maybe you even start by thinking about it after the meeting. Where did you learn it? Where did you, where did you come up with this, uh, this approach? Um, well, I'm always kind of a product of many and multiple different people and experiences. So one thing I do, Massimo, that is a, is a um, habit is I keep what I call the, a tilt journal, T-I-L-T, uh -huh. which stands for things I learned today. And oh. I do practice pretty continuous reflection on what did I learn today? What are the challenges I encountered and what can I learn from them? And I will say it says things I learned today. I don't do it every day because I've let go of the perfection of that, but I take time on a regular basis to sit down and jot down notes. And by synthesizing those thoughts, that's where some of this learning comes from. And usually it's, so it's whatever I'm experiencing or, or reading or thinking about or hearing. Um, quite a bit of that came from the work that was done by Patrick Lencioni. He did work quite a many years ago on I hate the title of the book, but I think it was the three signs of a miserable job. And uh, <laughs> that one talked a lot about those same types of concepts. And I tended to then just take them and put them in my own words. So yeah. it's that same type of thing. I think that's where that came from originally. 
and the practice of reflection, whether it's daily or not, yes. what I learned, what am I taking from this, watching the game film from the day and, and, and mining the new knowledge from it and the insight. Yeah. And I'll be honest. I don't think that people give that enough credence because sometimes we think that in order to develop professionally, we need to sign up for 15 classes and get these certifications and participate in all these really formal experiences. But really, we can learn from every single day if we are intentional about doing it. And for me, sometimes those insights are much more powerful than any class I've attended. I could not agree more, Jess. I, I, um, we, we should be shouting that from the mountaintops. <laughs> I mean, every meeting, every engagement, uh, every success, every failure is an opportunity to learn if we take the time to reflect on what occurred there. Mm -hmm. um, and it sounds like that deliberate practice on your part has paid dividends mm -hmm. um, and continues to do so. Your team's lucky to have you as a leader, Jess. Thanks. I like them. Yeah, I can tell. <laughs> Um, this has been so wonderful. Thank you for your time. And you are a wealth of knowledge, not only in the field as an expertise, but when it comes to what it means to be a strong leader and someone who um, holds the business priorities at the forefront, but also leads a team with, with compassion and care. Thanks. Appreciate that. So thank you. And uh, is there anywhere where people can find you if they want to follow up or learn more about you? And Absolutely. Yeah, the, really the only social media that I'm on is LinkedIn. So would welcome a connect from anyone there. And I'm pretty active on there. So, um, and do messaging through there with folks. So happy to connect with anyone in that platform. Awesome. All right. Well, everybody listening, be sure to check out Jess. And uh, she is a wonderful person to have in your network. And Jess, thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for another episode where we explore the leadership mind. Remember, the mind is where the connection between our being and doing, our intent and our actions. Make sure to visit our website, MassimoBacchus.com, where you can like and subscribe to the show on Spotify, Anchor FM, and Apple, so you'll never miss an episode. To download my Conscious Communication Workbook to support you in turning toxic conflict into collaborative gold, please visit MassimoBacchus.com forward slash workbook. While you're at it, if you found the episode valuable, please rate the podcast on your preferred platform and share it with your community so others can join and listen as well. Until next week, remember to lead with compassion, curiosity, and gratitude. Leadership is a gift.